from Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me back again. Like I said last time, I don't think it was your choice. Kyle did it before he left, and then he took off. So, But, but thank you anyway. Um, it was, it's hard to know how to like um, give credit for the things that I'll say today or pretty much anything that I say about Jesus or Christianity or faith because, uh, so I'm just gonna give you like a blanket reference. So my primary influence in the th- way I think and approach my faith is through a man called Dallas Willard. He died in 2013, but he was my teacher um, primarily through teaching and through his writings and things of that nature. And then all his friends is what I like to say because he has influenced so many people um, in, our, in our generation. And people either, I guess they either learn from him and really dive into what he says or they call him a heretic. So you have to decide for yourself, I guess. But I would, you, know, I, you clearly know which side I took on that. Um, so I just want to say that anything I say anymore, I'm not 100% sure like where my own thinking kind of lands and meshes with his thinking, and if I quote him directly, I'll let you know, but pretty much I don't have very many um, original thoughts around any of this. It's just how I've experienced Christ in the light of these people's teachings um, that has really changed my life and influences how I... Um, work in spiritual direction with folks and just how I work with my family and all of that. So I can't really tease it all out more than that. And I, I found myself in the talk going, and Dallas Willard said, and Dallas Willard said, I'm like, oh, for Pete's sake, Victoria, this is gonna get, this is gonna get a little old. So I give him credit for anything that sounds really um, good. <laughs> um, and then I just also wanted to say that I sat over a really great grain bowl and a matcha latte the other day with my husband and teased out so much of this because it's something that all summer has been following me along with our last two questions. So last two questions that I presented to us from the scriptures was God asking Elijah, what are you doing here? Right? So that is the first question that we explored together. And then last time with Bartimaeus and the healing of his blindness, Jesus asked him um, prior to his healing, what do you want me to do for you? And these questions just do something for me. They stir me up somehow and make me curious about my own inner thoughts and inner motivations in a way that maybe I don't reflect upon all the time. So today we are going to explore another one of these questions, or two. Um, So by the time we reach Matthew 16, which was just, part of that was just read, and today's questions, the disciples have been doing a lot of exploring and learning already. They've heard the Sermon on the Mount. 
They've witnessed healings and seen Jesus have power over a storm. They've heard parables and had their own life narratives flipped upside down. They have seen the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus is walking on water. They have been learning about the nature of the kingdom of God and witnessing it in action. And now here they are. And Jesus has two questions for them. He pulls them aside to the north in Caesarea Philippi, and I have to, Caesarea Philippi, and I have to wonder, you know, it's kind of remote up there apparently is what I hear. So was he drawing them aside to try to get to the heart of a matter without presenting too much risk for any of them? Because this was a risky thing to do, to go around teaching like this and drawing some disciples when you had no credentials, right? So he's pulling them aside and asking kind of a, So we're going to explore that today, and before we do, I want to do something that came to me, because all these questions that we explore and anything we read in Scripture, we read through the internal movements of our lives, like inside ourselves, whatever's happening inside of us, and all the different voices that have influenced our lives, as Dallas Willard once said, God's voice, well, you might not really know what it sounds like, but it probably doesn't sound like your mom. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. I'm so glad that's not the case. I hope my kids will learn the same thing. But what does he look like when he asks us these questions? And what does he sound like? Right? So let's start with a little exercise that I'm borrowing from when he was speaking to the rich young ruler who went away sad because he didn't want to give up his riches. But if you remember those verses from that part of the gospel, Jesus first looks at him and loves him, it says. He looks at him and loves him. So before we even dive any, into any of this, I want us just to pause for a minute. You can avert your eyes down or you could close your eyes and just take 30 seconds to imagine the face of Jesus, however you imagine him in your mind, is completely fine. And imagine the most loving look you can muster up. And see those loving eyes gazing at you. See Jesus looking at you. and loving you. So these questions in that spirit, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, but who do you say that I am? These are two inextricably linked questions that also must be answered for themselves. The disciples answered Jesus saying that people believed he is a prophet. Seems fair enough. Jesus has been speaking into the cultural context of their day. But apparently there's more to it. 
he then says, okay, but who do you say that I am? Just the question itself implies that something was missing from their answer, that maybe it wasn't completely wrong. And when the second question is proposed, it all seems to click for Simon, of course. Like, everything clicks for Simon, right? As if he was just waiting to be asked like that child in elementary school who just can't wait to be called on their hands in the air, like, me, 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 pick me. I know the answer to this question. And Simon does seem to get it right. However, Simon cannot possibly know the fullness of his answer. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In that time, the Messiah was largely thought to be the one who would overthrow the leaders of the day, the governmental leaders particularly, and the religious leaders. So I think it's safe to assume that Simon could, have un could not have understood that Jesus would be a crucified and then risen Messiah, ruling from the invisible realms of the heavens, from the unseen, and not just an, a ruler that was going to overthrow their very frustrating government. Nonetheless, it is a start, and a good start at that, because Simon, now Peter, was at least acknowledging that Jesus was more than a prophet, which is what all the people were saying. Yes, Jesus was the one who would speak out against the injustices of the day. But according to N.T. Wright, Simon Peter was saying more than that. He was saying that he believed Jesus was the one that the prophets and the Psalms had been speaking of. He was the one true king. Somehow Simon Peter saw a little more. He wasn't just a prophet, although that he was, but he was the one, the one the prophets had been looking for. They may not have known exactly what that would look like, but Simon knew it to be true, and both he and Jesus probably knew it was a risky confession. And so it goes with us. We are confronted with this question. Who do you say that I am. Imagine again those eyes looking at you and loving you and asking, who do you say that I am? I sense almost a pleading in the question. What do you sense? I mean, the question is a step up from who do people say that the Son of Man is? And we have that all the time in our current spheres of Christianity. I mean, who do your parents say Jesus is? Who does your church or your previous churches say Jesus is? Who does your pastor say? Who do your neighbors say he is? Or who, my favorite, who does your favorite author or your favorite podcaster say Jesus is? In entertaining those questions, we will certainly receive some treasure and some guidance from these spheres, but we'll probably receive a little bit of confusion and maybe even a little bit of trash along the way. 
And no matter what we receive and no matter how good it is, we still need to come back to that question for ourselves. Who do you say that I am? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we throw away good teaching or create our own version of Christ, our own version of Christianity. Quite the opposite. What I am suggesting is that we must go further. We must decide for ourselves and own for ourselves who this Jesus is. Like the disciples, there comes a time after hearing good teaching and learning and witnessing through others the life of God, that we must find a way to answer this question and experience it and live it out as if it were our own integrated truth and not just someone else's, which is so easy to do. This is partly what I loved about Dallas Willard, and he would hate that I was bringing his name up so many times, is that he constantly said, I mean, just please, I beg of you, do not point people to me. Let my teaching point you to the one. And I think it is important to look around and first ask the question, you know, who do all these people say that Christ is? Because it gives us that start and a place to reflect on our own thinking. Who does the culture think he is? And all the other questions that we presented a moment ago. This gives us an understanding of our milieu and what we have been taught nearly through osmosis, right? We just absorb it as we go through our days. It just seeps into us somehow. And it is what we are being taught around us. Even with our knowing, without our knowing what we're being taught, that leads us to need to think about it more deeply. So as we become more aware of these narratives, eventually, with God's help, we must decide for ourselves who he is. And how do we go about deciding this is the question. So C.S. Lewis wrote a little book you might know. If you don't know it, I highly recommend it, called Mere Christianity. In that book, he famously outlines the reasoning behind this question, who is Jesus? I'm going to read you an excerpt. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, of course, Jesus was a great teacher. Still, that was not the whole point. It was not the end point. Jesus' life and teachings demonstrated for Simon Peter that he was dealing with someone far beyond the realm of good teacher. Jesus' teachings did not come out of a gifting as a good teacher. Jesus was God, and his teachings and workings were an outflow of that identity. It was these very teachings and demonstrations flowing from the loving heart of God that got Jesus killed. Loving enemies, loving women, loving and healing lepers, having the audacity to touch them and invite them back into community after being ostracized. He crossed the lines. He broke the boundaries of the day's religious beliefs, and he refused to condone harmful behavior, like the adulterous woman in John 8. Jesus speaks to her, restores her dignity, and exhorts her to leave her life of sin, which was the very thing stealing her dignity to begin with. Jesus demonstrated a life of love and service, of accepting people exactly where they were and still calling them to something better beyond their unhealthy patterns that were destroying their lives and the lives of others. Jesus is the most brilliant, ethical, and philosophical teacher to have ever lived. But as Lewis says, not just because he was a good teacher. It is because he is who he says he is, God himself. And this means he created it all, and he knows exactly how it's supposed to function. Like the brilliant maker of a car engine, Jesus knows the ins and the outs of what he made. He knows how we are meant to work and function in relationship to this world and to each other. He can satisfy our quest for philosophical understanding and iron out our ethical confusions because he is the maker of our hearts and our souls. Jesus is the greatest doctor and scientist to ever have walked this earth. Again, this is because he made it all. Every last cell and subatomic particle. He knows the basic components of healing our cells. And this is how we will one day each be raised from the dead. He knows the molecular structure of water and wine. And this is how he turned one into the other. It isn't magic. It's science. And it is how he multiplied a few fish and loaves. He made the food and the water and the wine. 
He knows how to do it. And he is the master of his trade, and all things are held together in him. It's reality. And like the disciples, after learning about and exploring this Jesus, we too must be confronted with this question. Now, after all this that we know and that we've learned, who do you say that I am? Who do we here today say that he is? Who does Gateway say that he is? I'm assuming you already have some confidence in his identity as God, or perhaps you wouldn't even be here today. Still, it is a question that goes beyond our intellectual and textbook answers and invites us into an experiential reality of the answer that Jesus gives to this question. I don't think he is saying, just get the answer right. I think it's more of an invitation into a relationship. Who do you say that I am? How will you choose to relate to me? Like my wanting to know the answer to this question in the context of my marriage, asking my husband, who do you say that I am? How he answers this question will largely inform how we are in relationship with one another. If he sees his wife as someone who's only there to cook and clean and drive the kids around, well, then he's likely to treat me like a servant. But if he sees me as one who's to be honored and cherished, who is his closest friend, then his actions will flow from this perspective. He will love me, and he will value me, and invite me into conversation and tender companionship. The disciples had their own experience with this. When in John 15, Jesus says to them, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. So who do you say Jesus is? This is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God and his son, Jesus. All of our actions in life will flow out of this. Now, belief is not an intellectual assent, as we just alluded to, like memorizing a textbook definition or regurgitating it so you pass on a test, which is precisely how we've been molded mostly since day one, right? Just get the answers right. Belief is something, belief in something means to be ready to act as if it is true, whether it is true or not. You can believe in things that aren't true. 
So if we believe in gravity, we might not jump out of an airplane without a parachute. We're ready to act as if it's true. So as Dallas Willard does directly say, you have to get reality right or you can't get your life right. So who do you say that I am is a question about reality, about the way things really, really are. And we are invited into this reality and invited to base our actions on it. Scripture has verses that invite us exactly into that, into acting as if our belief in God as the one supreme being is true. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't put your confidence in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Simon Peter made a confession. He displayed confidence in Christ in who Jesus said he was. And as we do the same, we can move forward in life with the expectation that Christ will guide us. I can now do everything, my whole life, in the way of Jesus, in his character, and with his character. I can walk as a child of God with the intention that, with God's grace, it can be said that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is what my friends at Renovare have called the with God life. Once we have our answer, let's say like Peter, we must then work it out in our daily lives. Okay, so now I believe this. Now I'm ready to act as if it's true. This means I can do everything I do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. How? Because he is with me. We are not acting alone. So a story from Dallas Willard's life goes like this. He um, had a friend who learned a lot from him. Her name is Jan Johnson. And she was so intrigued by what he said that she went to his, she asked if she'd go to his house and interview him. And he said yes, and so she did. And they got into a conversation about how Dallas has built his whole house from scratch, from his own two hands. He had experience in construction. And... He had worked a lot with pipes and things in that process, his plumbing. And Jan was having some difficulty with some things in her life. And Dallas's answer to her was, Jan, it's never just you and the pipe. It's never just you and the pipe. You are not acting alone. And isn't that the best news of all? 
we are not alone. You are not alone. And isn't this one of our biggest fears? That if we reflect long enough, we might find that really the truth is I'm all alone by myself in this universe? And isn't much of what we do day to day as a society, maybe as individuals, an effort based in trying to do whatever we can to ensure that we will not be rejected and then left alone? But actually, we don't have to do this because when it comes right down to it, we are not alone. And we are loved and accepted all along the way. God is with us and we are empowered with his spirit to be able to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means we learn, we try, we fail. We ask questions, we train, we fumble and we come face to face with our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And this is a good thing. It is a really good thing that you mess up. And it's a really good thing that I mess up a lot. And why? Because then we can see our very desperate need for God. Because we want to deal in truth, right? And it's revealed to us then in our failures where we need God's help. And it's not just any God, but it's this God, the Jesus who walks with us and talks with us. Another Willard quote, God's address is at the end of your rope. Have you ever hung from the end of that rope? Do you know how that feels? Dangling there? I certainly do. And while it's highly uncomfortable, it is a very good and safe place to be because that's where we find God's kingdom waiting for us. There's God himself waiting for us to answer this question, who do you say that I am? And then waiting for us to live into this. Can you almost just imagine that, hanging from that rope? Being so afraid that you'll fall to your death? And the face and the loving gaze is there, looking and saying, Victoria, who do you say that I am? It's where the rubber hits the road. We are learning to live in God's kingdom. And in light of this question we've been exploring, there's another really important question that presents itself in the process. Now, who do I say that I am? It's a really big question. Who do I say that I am? 
let's pause for another moment and ask ourselves that. Just quietly again, don't have to say anything out loud, but just take a moment to ask yourself that. Who do I say that I am? What do you come up with in answer to that question? Well, James Bryan Smith gives a mantra of sorts that we can say. Of course, you would insert your own name and then work with this regularly. I am Victoria, in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom's not in trouble, and neither am I. This answers both questions, doesn't it? Who is Jesus, and who am I? And then Dallas Willard says it like this, I am an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. This also answers both questions. God is great, and by my nature, as created by him, I belong with him. So now how we think about God and how we think about ourselves and therefore about others and therefore about creation is exactly where our spiritual formation is taking place, and it's the heart of the matter. So we need to get God into our minds, into our thoughts, habitually, in a way that we are increasingly being ruled by God's love and ways. We grow in this because of our awareness of his presence with us, and as such, our dependence on God will grow. And once we've answered the question about who he is, we can trust that depending on him is a very good thing. And of course, this all leads to the Great Commission in chapter 28 of Matthew, of which we cannot get a lot of understanding until these other questions are first answered. It'd be quite a scary adventure to go out with the Great Commission with other answers to who Jesus is, or no answer at all, or maybe not an answer to the question of who I am. But once these questions have been ironed out and we've gotten to the heart of the matter, we can engage in this great commission. All authority in heaven on earth, as Jesus says, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you could take this great commission, different from the great commandment, but interrelated. You could take this and you could rewrite it in your own time to fit your daily patterns and rhythms. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, I 
will go to all the corners of my home, all the corners of my workplace, and I will invite people into loving relationship with me, and then therefore, hopefully, Jesus. I will immerse them in the character of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I will immerse them by my love. And then I will show them the way with my life and help them know they're never alone. So there it is again, this with God life. God is with us. We are empowered and enabled by the Son of God, present with us at every moment as we continue to learn and grow and in turn teach others to do the same. We are not inviting people into statements and intellectual ideas, although that'll be a part of it. We are inviting them into our experiential reality in which all the love and goodness and power of the universe can flow from the Creator into the minds and the hearts and the bodies and souls of the created. And then we can co-create with God the kingdom on earth. This is our job. And he really is the answer to it all, from climate change to race relations to the threat of war. And it begins with us who are here, the people who gather together to learn how to do everything in his name and character. We spur each other on. We teach one another, and we learn, and then we go out and we bring the kingdom into every corner of our lives. This all gets finally to the question of how. How do we do all this? So many I talk to are at a loss for this, especially with the rapid pace of our really, really busy lives. But it is precisely in our busy lives where God is present and wants to help us. So how do we live out this invitation, this with God life? I find it pretty futile to say a bunch of things and then not boil it down like, well, what do I do when I wake up tomorrow and I'm making my coffee? Or what do I do when I'm in that traffic jam or when everything's falling apart around me? You know, we have a lot of options. Well, this is where our spiritual practices come into play. We place ourselves in positions where our awareness of God is given a chance to grow and expand. And in our expanding awareness, we learn to trust him more and rely on him. It is like raising a plant living in pretty decent soil. We give it what it needs. We put it in the right amount of sunlight. We feed it. We prune it. And maybe we even talk to it. We give it what it needs. 
And we need to do the same for ourselves. We are creatures who have environments that are home for us. And we have environments that are not. These spiritual practices are not heroic efforts and great spiritual feats that take up large amounts of time. We do not need to go away and fast for 40 days just because Jesus did. (laughs) Phew. But we may choose to fast for a while from social media and dedicate that time to a moment of prayer instead. We can take time to do that. It's already built in our day, right? We don't have to set aside different time. Or like Frank Labach's simple yet profound game of minutes, which is outlined in his wonderful little book called Letters by a Modern Mystic, we could maybe set a timer and intentionally turn our attention to God for just a few minutes, several times a day. His game was that he was going to try to think of God at least once every minute all day. And the book outlines his experience with this. Maybe we commit to beginning the day with the Lord's Prayer and ending it with Psalm 23. And maybe as we read it, we rewrite it in our minds to fit our current context and understand where these words meet up against the daily reality of our lives, of what we're actually doing, because we aren't shepherds. I mean, unless I get that wrong, someone here might be, I guess. But most of us are not. That's not the environment which we're in. But we can take those words and make them our own. Or perhaps we spend a few minutes each night before we go to bed imagining ourselves literally walking through our day the next day and inviting God into those moments where we already know we're going to feel stuck, where we might need his extra help and attention. So you see, it isn't really about the practices. It's about connecting with God and exploring our growth areas and inviting him into every moment of our days. Like working out in the gym, it isn't about big muscles. I mean, at least it's not at my age. (laughs) But it's about functioning in the best way possible so I can be filled with abundant life and then out of that be of service to this world. So whatever the practice is, and there are so many, including all of Christianity's classics, The goal is to grow in our understanding of who he is and who we are so we can operate in the spirit of the Great Commission within every corner of our lives, wherever the opportunity presents itself, living an abundant and vibrant life and inviting others into the same. We really aren't meant to flail and waffle and despair, although there will probably be some of that along the way but rather there's a way through the flailing and the waffling and the despairing into the with God life. 
So I encourage you as I go, Gateway, to engage in practices with one another, to talk with one another about your experiences, to share your failures and your successes and your joys, and to walk with each other in the name of Jesus Christ so that none of you is ever alone. And you can share that with the world around you. And it'll be very clear what the answer to that question is. Who do you say Jesus is? In closing, before communion, I'd like to read to you a poem written by a um, Jesuit priest several decades ago, 1900s. This priest's name is Teilhard de Chardin, and the name of the poem is Patient Trust. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. <laughs>